podcast is part of the 80s Ruled Network. Visit the 80s Ruled on Facebook for more 1980s awesomeness. Duran Duran in the 1980s. Welcome back to another episode of 1980s Now, a weekly examination of the importance of 1980s pop culture and its influence today. Hey guys, my name's Will, and joining me as always are my friends and my co-hosts, but that's not two sets of people, that's just two people, Ray and Kat. Hello! I'm so excited to be here. Really? What is going on with you? That you have to feign excitement? It's not, I didn't feign anything. That was truly, I'm truly excited. Oh, I see mm. what it is. I get it. It's because of the topic today. Because on, on mm. today's show, we're going to be discussing the legacy of Duran Duran's Rio with our special mm. guest, music journalist, Annie Zaleski. Now you have nothing against Annie Zaleski. Nah, 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 You're just not a big fan of uh, Duran Duran. They have, I like Hungry Like the Wolf, which is one of my favorite songs. Oh, mm-hmm. And I like Rio. And mm-hmm. All right. that sums it up. Ray, there's so much more you're missing. Although it is interesting, Kat, right? That his two mm-hmm. favorite songs are on Rio, the album we're we'll discussing today. Excellent point. So Excellent point. even in our little world here of 1980s mm-hmm. now, Rio had a big influence on one third, no, on two thirds of our hosts, Ray <laughs> and Kat. What about you? I would say Reflex had more of an effect on me only okay. because- uh, by the time I was DJing, that was a song that I was playing often. I just only le- learned recently that I was actually playing a remixed version of it. Hmm. Was it mm-hmm. remixed by Nile Rodgers? Did we learn that? Yes, he produced that. Of Chic and not the original uh, Seven and the Ragged Tiger version, which is very different. Mm-hmm. It almost seems like an acoustic version of it when you hear them back to back. It's I, I hate to say this word. It's almost kind of lame <laughs> compared yeah. To, yeah. Hey. to the remix. Nile yeah. Rodgers, man, knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. I, I don't like the song the reflex. Okay. But I like when we play Dungeons and Dragons and you make a reflex save. Yeah. And everyone at the table goes, the reflex, flat, flat, flex. <laughs> yes. I like that, that part of it. That's true. Yeah. Yes. It happens really? every time. Yeah. There's a All lot right. of songs that come up when you play D&D. <laughs> Try to think of, oh, poison. If you get poisoned. There's got to be a bunch of, I don't know there's others. That sounds fun. <laughs> yeah, you'd like that part of it. I would. I was wondering, maybe Ray doesn't like the reflex because he is the lonely child who's <laughs> waiting in the park. Is that is that the, then <laughs> later he's waiting in the dark. It's both. That's one thing that Simon Laba does. He plays it up. Yeah, you never quite know which one know he's going to say. Yeah. Yeah. Nah, that, those lyrics <laughs> are stupid. <gasps> Blasphemy. I, I, can, I can hear Ray equally saying, poems are dumb. <laughs> <laughs> I love poems. Okay. Limericks, oh, haikus, yeah. they're awesome. <laughs> hey, everybody, don't forget, right now we are in the throes of a giveaway. We are looking for a winner to award, two winners actually, to award a vinyl copy and separately a cassette copy of Million Miler's first album, Millie, which of course is Tom Higginson of the Plain White Tees' uh, recent solo effort. All you got to do is follow Humans Were Here and Million Miler on Facebook and or Instagram and let us know that you did so. You can message us anywhere or just send me an email, will at 1980snow.com. Okay, hey, let's get caught up on 1980s news. Hey, this week in 1980s news, per deadline, it only took 33 years, but finally, director, producer Ivan Reitman, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and Danny DeVito have come together and found a way to birth a sequel to Twins. (laughs) 
Do you guys remember hearing about a possible sequel to Twins for, for decades now, right? Literally. Yeah, I remember this coming up a lot. I think Arnold is the one who really wants to do this. Mm. Yeah, mm. okay. Like, I think no one else gives a crap about this, but Arnold really wants to do this. Hmm. Does, he, does he need it? Does Arnold Schwarzenegger need a new comedy throwback to the 80s? Maybe a connection to the well, 80s he might need. When, when, what was the last comedy that Arnold did? Uh, it's been a uh, long time. Yeah, I think I think that movie where he's being hunted by... Uh, oh, what was... Uh, it's called Killing Gunther, I think. And I think uh, uh, Schwarzenegger's Gunther. Anyway, to your point, what has he been in a movie that anybody's seen and enjoyed? <laughs> as a, or a comedy or uh, I, I saw... I think it's called The Last Stand with him and Johnny Knoxville. Isn't that an old movie? You know, time is... <laughs> when you get older, especially. <laughs> yeah, time is fleeting. Mm. Very relative. <laughs> yes. Well, but um, no, yeah. actually, um, I'm pretty excited about this because oh, okay. originally you had Eddie Murphy, who has right. been talked about a lot. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't really on board with that. Okay. Mm. But now that Tracy Morgan mm-hmm. has been talked about, I'm like, you know what? The three of these idiots together. Oh. I think this might be funny. Okay. I'm surprised to hear that you wouldn't be on board with Eddie Murphy. Why is that? Uh, he's not the same anymore. He's okay. nowhere near as funny as he used to be. So we, right. Marie and I talked about, uh, we did a mini review at least about, of the new coming to America, the sequel coming to America. Yes. And it was fine, but yeah, it wasn't mm-hmm. Eddie. He was the closest we've gotten to Eddie in many years. Yeah. But, but as Ray's suggesting, this has been talked about for years and Reitman confirmed in this uh, recent piece in Deadline that the first concept for this film came up during a meeting between Arnold Schwarzenegger and Eddie Murphy years ago where Eddie Murphy supposedly said that I should be a triplet in the next Twins film, that that would be, <laughs> quote, a very funny comedy, end quote. But uh, with the success of Coming to America, in spite of Ray and I, our criticism of the film, it was successful anyway, at least enough to get Eddie Murphy to be to have be a to be very busy, so busy that he could no longer participate in the film. And so Reitman, who's been good friends with Tracy Morgan, asked his pal to be in it. And then when he agreed, they rewrote the script to fit Morgan's particular style of comedy, which is different than Eddie's. Yeah, I like him a lot, so I'm okay with this move. Yep. Uh, I am curious though why Ivan Reitman would pass on being in charge of Ghostbusters, mm-hmm. letting his son do it, and do this instead. Like, that makes no sense to me. Maybe because in the new Ghostbusters, it's a, a younger mm. crew, a younger cast, and maybe he felt like yeah. giving his son a chance to connect with that. Yeah, I think that's right, because the film itself is about legacy, and you can't get more you know legacy than having also the director pass on mm-hmm. the uh, role. If I started off this segment by saying to you, which Arnold Schwarzenegger film am I summarizing here? Secretly, there was another baby born who hasn't been touched with his sibling. They meet and it's how they achieve a bond together after all these years. That's the premise of the film. Wouldn't you have said twins? Yeah. That's how Reitman described triplets. <laughs> Maybe they should get Jason Reitman to direct us. Maybe, but uh, I'm hoping they let Danny DeVito be more like he is now. Like, he's completely insane in everything he does now. So I'm hoping they let his character develop oh, 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 to, like, you know, how he is on uh, Always Sunny. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's just, everything he does now is just so over the top and crazy good. Mm-hmm. And I'm mm-hmm. hoping they let him do something like that in this one. Wait yeah. a second. DeVito's in his 70s. Schwarzenegger's in his 70s. <laughs> Tracy Morgan's like 52 years old, maybe. <laughs> how is he a triplet of theirs? Wait, wasn't there something in that article? 
about they were commenting on how young <laughs> they yes. look. Yes. When I read <laughs> that, I thought, they are they are. de-aging them? <laughs> yes. Uh, Freitman talks about, well, this is, yeah, you're, in the article, they point out how the film is supposed to start shooting in January. Although Freitman in the article also says that now they're going out to try to get the money together to, put, to make the film. So how are they shooting in January? They might not be shooting in January. So they sent out this sizzle reel, which, you know, usually shows any number of things. And in this one, it seems to show the actors interacting with one another because he talks about how people are commenting on their chemistry and, as Kat pointed out, how young they look. <laughs> I guess they're right, man. Hey, in other 1980s news, according to the LA Times, David Lee Roth passed on opening for the Motley Crue tour. So immediately following his uh, public beef with the Gene Simmons... You know, after Simmons uh, made some unflattering comments about uh, former Van Halen frontman, we've learned about new static between Roth and another legendary band. While speaking with the LA Times, Motley Crue bassist Nikki Six revealed that Roth was offered a slot on the big Motley Crue reunion tour that's been pushed back now to 2022. You know, the one that Ray's been waiting for with Def Leppard and Poison and Joan Jett. According to Six, Roth passed on it in his unique way, saying, quote, I don't open for bands that I influenced, end quote. <laughs> Did, did uh, Van Halen or maybe David Lee Roth specifically influence Motley Crue or Def Leppard or, or Joan Jett? He couldn't have influenced Joan Jett, could he? Uh, absolutely. Mm. Van Halen mm. influenced everything that came after them. But Runaways were probably contemporaries of Van Halen. If no, because not- the Runaways suck ass, so... Van Halen is the greatest rock band that has ever lived. Oh. Mm. David Lee Roth is the greatest <laughs> frontman. That has ever lived and ever will live. I feel like I've heard this before. I will say I've said it a thousand times, probably on the show a thousand Mm -hmm. times. You have. You have. So (laughs) if, um, yeah, if he doesn't want to open for bands that he influenced, I'm okay with that. Hmm. Really? Because I I wouldn't want to do it. If I was David Lee Roth, I sure as s*** wouldn't want to open for a band that I influenced. That's crazy. But, But it sounds like it would be fun to play, like, in this concert with all these Great musicians and the money. And it's also just David Lee Roth. It's not Van Halen and David Lee Roth. Right. It's just David Lee Roth. I mean, he's not mm-hmm. even going to have Steve Vai with him. Who's playing with David Lee Roth these days? But you don't know that. You don't know that he he couldn't go get Steve Vai to play with him on this tour because it is a gigantic tour. He could have got mm. some really great musicians like Steve Vai and Billy Sheehan from his solo tour. And right. he like, that's one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. They were amazing. So if he was on this tour, they'd abs- they would have to absolutely be the headliner. Mm, wow. Interesting. In spite of your love of Molly Crew and these other acts, that's the pecking order as far as you see it. In, in my eyes, David Lee Roth is the greatest frontman to ever live, and Van Halen is the greatest rock band. So uh, it would be an insult to have him open for those bands. So I absolutely agree <laughs> with him. You know, I heard Kat earlier was saying that about Duran Duran. Duran Duran is the greatest band ever, and Simon LeBon is the greatest front man ever. Yes. Well, obviously you need to go back and watch some more Van Halen videos. Cause oh, I see, I've seen enough. <laughs> All right, Ray. What about the music video for, we'll talk about something that sounds geographical, Panama mm-hmm. or Rio? Better music video. Well, once, once again, <laughs> if you say Van Halen, 
I'm voting Van Halen. (laughs) You're not not objective. All right. We'll go with Kat because she's objective. I do really love the song Panama, but sorry, Rio. I'm I'm not objective. You know, I looked up Ray because Ray, as I mentioned, Ray's been, we've talked about this many times now. Ray has tickets for the concert. When they come here to Cleveland Mm, in July Mm. of 2022, Ray's got tickets. But I was imagining, what if I wanted to get tickets? So today I looked up to see what I could get as available as tickets. And, you know, there's many tickets available on StubHub. In fact, mm-hmm. I could get a front row seat at First Energy Stadium here in Cleveland for $7,500. That's It's worth every penny. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not even sure I can seat the band from where my tickets yeah. are. But <laughs> Hey, in other 80s news, speaking of Duran Duran, we have learned recently that Duran Duran's special sound is thanks in part to a metalhead, mm-hmm. Duran Duran's guitarist, Andy Taylor. You know, they have a new album coming out in October. Duran Duran, uh, in the, on that album, they were going to collaborate with Giorgio Moroder. Mark Ronson, legendary producers creating many, many hit songs that where folks are familiar with. But guitarist Andy Taylor has not been part of the band for some time now. Uh, mm-hmm. Recently, on an article speaking about the upcoming uh, album, Nick Rhodes pointed out that Andy Taylor offered an, a musical counterpoint to his, uh, Rhodes' sensibility, saying regarding Taylor's uh, record collection, it, quote, disturbed me. <laughs> Rhodes went on to talk about how Andy Taylor's record collection included a lot of heavy rock things, stuff, <laughs> as he says, quote, you would have avoided the kids at school for, end quote. <laughs> I think that means Nick Rhodes would have avoided would have avoided Ray. <laughs> I'm I'm curious to I'm curious to know what he thinks heavy metal is. Mm-hmm. Is it like Nickelback and no, Papa Roach? No, no he liked Van like Halen. That? He's older than you are. Yeah, we're talking about seventies and eighties rock. Uh, mm-hmm. This is a quote from Andy Taylor: "I'm a f-ing ACDC fan and an out and out headbanger." So he he named one band. Oh, Ray. He's so jealous. Fantastic. He <laughs> likes he likes the one of the greatest bands of all time. And you're not going to give him any kudos for that. I'm not giving him <laughs> for that. There is this thing where men are, are, are intimidated by Duran Duran. What is that? Because they're musically talented, I'm not, physically nah. attractive, even now. That's why. <laughs> so, but it turns out that it was this, you, you know, this, the diversity of the band's uh, different musical interests that created the unique sound, at least according to uh, Nick Rhodes. He says that, quote, Andy's edge and Andy's rockiness, uh, end quote, is what gave Duran Duran that something special. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Quote, it really worked because it was going completely against the disco grooves and the electronic pulses, mm-hmm. end quote, which is what, you know, Nick Rhodes was pr- providing to the act with his uh, since. Huh, that's weird because yeah. for me, it's it's Simon LeBond's voice oh. that mm-hmm. carries this band because the lyrics make no sense. So yeah. <laughs> his, his voice is so good mm-hmm. that his dumb lyrics don't matter. Okay, oh. right. We cannot separate Simon's voice from Duran Duran. But there's a whole lot more going on behind there. And actually, yeah, this article or or a bit of information does not surprise me to hear. And I wasn't consciously aware of it at the time as a teenager. Yeah. But for me, each song had had such variety in it and Mm -hmm. each album had variety. And then if you look at their whole career... They, they, they just did a whole bunch of different things. Yeah. Well, they, they are great musicians. I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit here and, and say they're not, they, they are great musicians. Yep. So, I mean, it, if you're that good, it's not hard to craft catchy top 40 songs, <laughs> which is what they did. Kids, this is what you call a backhanded compliment. <laughs> 
That might be a front-handed compliment. Or backhanded. Might just be backhanded. <laughs> might be a throat punch compliment. <laughs> I don't know. It's the best we're going to get. It's all you're getting out of me. All right. We're going to talk more about Duran Duran. So let's say that was 1980s news. Hey, if you like the show, you probably either like Duran Duran or Van Halen, but no other band. That's probably one of those is your favorite. That's your only two choices. I'm not even throwing in one, right? But anyway. Hey, please uh, like the show on Facebook or rate and review it on wherever you listen to it or go and support us on Patreon. And we'll mention that again later on. Mm -hmm. Like we mentioned, we're going to be speaking in in a little while with music journalist Annie Zaleski about, I guess, generally about Duran Duran and more specifically about their second album, Rio, which really helped them, I don't know, uh, catapult themselves or catapulted Mm -hmm. them, let's say, to international stardom. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. I'm checking with yep. Kat because she's the Duran Duran yes. expert. Okay, very good. Yeah. So I have a game for us to play, which will allow Ray to get in. I promise it's not Duran Duran trivia. It's <laughs> Duran Duran tangential. And I'll explain that in a moment. But before that, I was curious if you guys remember when you first heard Duran Duran, you know, our guest Duran, uh, our guest Annie first discovered Duran Duran much like us in her sort of, I guess, early teens, I believe. But she's younger than we are, so it wasn't mm-hmm. when the albums were coming out. It was, you know, a decade or so later. Do you guys remember when you first learned about or heard or saw Duran Duran? I, d- I don't know. I don't remember if it was an ah moment, but definitely through MTV. Mm. And I feel very sure it was Hungry Like the Wolf. Mm. The Hungry Like the Wolf video okay. is my first strong memory. Right. And I was hooked. <laughs> That's all it took. <laughs> and so it was a, ah, uh, might have been a, ah, uh, or maybe not, but it was probably too young to be a, ah, uh, still, right? right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. It was kind of <laughs> that age where it's like, yeah, I don't know, I, I mean it for myself, where it's like, you feel like, I don't know, I really feel like I'm into this person, but I'm not sure why yet. Exactly, yeah, yes. Kind of, <laughs> but so you think yep, it was yep. a video? It, it was definitely a video. Mm. It ha- Yeah, it was definitely a video. Because I- the visual component was very strong yep. for my um, appreciation of them. <laughs> and Hungry Like Wolf, that's the video where he flips over the table, isn't it? Yes, he does flip over a table in the bazaar. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hungry Like the Wolf kind of actually makes me think of Indiana Jones. There's a mm-hmm. definitely a Raiders of the Lost Ark vibe right. happening that's in there. D- yes. Exact same thing I was going to say. The, hey. uh, the video for that song would be the first time I heard him. Mm-hmm. And because it has such a resemblance to Indiana Jones, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. Um, that made it much more entertaining to watch. And maybe that's why it's one of your favorite songs, Ray. Because yeah, it's it's just a really good song too. And to have True. a video mm-hmm. that's that cool, like the real video is dumb. Oh. <laughs> but this one, I wish they would have just kept this this style videos all the way through their career. Just always an adventure in some exotic place with him dressed like Indiana Jones. Yeah. That would have been great. <laughs> the continuing yeah. stories of Simon LeBond. Yeah, that would have been hmm. cool. Would Rio have been okay if he had been dressed like Indiana Jones? Yeah, if they would have tied it more, like <laughs> the boat ride stuff is weird. It's like, okay, that's a that's really lazy. Where's the natives yeah. and the elephants? They were on Antigua. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it was oh. a totally different place. <laughs> hey. Dr. Jones goes to different places too. They're not always right. in one place. You add that map with the plane going. <laughs> right. Right. That's right. That's do. right. I don't think we had, uh, I think Ray and I have talked about this when we talked about MTV a long time ago. I don't recall we had MTV in Jersey city, New Jersey till much later than other folks down the shore Jersey. Mm-hmm. My, my family got it first. And even somewhere mm-hmm. in like the Northwest of New Jersey, I'd visit family that had those cable boxes with all those channels. We didn't yes. have cable in the city. 
till much mm-hmm. later. And as we learned talking to uh, Nina Blackwood, mm-hmm. MTV was available in some strange areas before it was inv- available in the metropolitan areas. She was broadcasting in mm-hmm. <laughs> New York City and they didn't have it there, you know? So right? she'd travel to other areas <laughs> where they'd be like mobbing her and she was, you know, quite surprised. But <laughs> so I think I want to say I was familiar with their songs. I probably heard on the radio first, which might've been hungry like the wolf, but my strongest mm-hmm. memory, I guess I have two memories. One, I remember being in a candy store that was near our school that was in between mm-hmm. my school and my house. And I remember being an argument breaking out in the candy store there about whether Duran Duran was cool or not. And the girls from the mm-hmm. school were like, yeah, they're cool. And the boys were like, no, they suck. <laughs> and the other member I had was shortly thereafter, or maybe around the DJ, starting to DJ and mm-hmm. playing reflex. I had the little 45 or reflex. Yeah. And that was a real, you know, you get definitely get the girls on the dance floor when you played that. No song would bring the boys on the dance floor. Mm. Ever. Mm. Wait, I witnessed... One time, a boy boy's going out on the dance floor. Yeah. Ray's going to like this one. Guess what mm-hmm. song it was, Ray? Mm. No, what brought what, the boys out. What grade were you on here? Like, give us a year at least or something. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Seventh or eighth grade. All right. So yeah. it's like 84, mm. maybe 83, 84. Yes, actually. It would have been 1984, actually. <laughs> probably jump. Yes, you got it. <laughs> wow, look at that. It comes full circle. Somehow your love's... You know, there's an <laughs> it intersection. Does, doesn't it? All right. Well, with that, I've got yeah, I've got a game yeah. for you guys to play. And again, Ray, you, 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 this isn't Duran Duran trivia. We're going to do some kind of head-to-head Van Halen versus Duran Duran thing. It's going to require some kind of figuring. But for now, uh, where's my other notes? I just tossed it away. <laughs> there's more notes. I have a list here that's more reasons Duran Duran's better than Van Halen, and I want to. Oh, I just want you, that's right. I just want you to listen to them. <laughs> I, I'm not. I'll listen to them. All right. That's number fine. fifty. I'm going to count backwards. <laughs> <laughs> they really, as Ray said, you know, he ultimately concedes even that not only they were handsome and not only did they never stuff cucumbers in their pants like David Lee Roth did in that uh, video where he's humping a dinosaur, <laughs> but also they're really, they really are great musicians and it's something that's easy to, uh, I guess, not notice when you're getting sort of caught up in it. Mm-hmm. But in particular, I think we talked about this, I think we talked about it on the show, but maybe, maybe it was off here. John Taylor is especially fantastic at playing bass. He is indeed. Yeah, actually, I don't know if we said that on the show because yeah. I was at work and Rio came on mm-hmm. uh-huh. and it was the first time that I realized that he could even play the bass. <laughs> like that was the moment I was like, you know what? This bass line is pretty good. So <laughs> Pretty good. Yeah, It's one of the best bass lines of the 80s. I think it's undeniable that the style in which John Taylor plays the bass is more like a funk band mm-hmm. Uh, than it is like a rock band mm-hmm. or a pop band even mm-hmm. because one of those bassists would just sort of, you know, ride the root of a chord the whole time. And this guy's going all over the place. <laughs> I mean, Rio's a great example, like you said, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Really a skilled dude. And with that in mind, it is time once again for us to play. Bass, how low can you go? Ooh. <laughs> I have got, I have for you here, seven songs that were popular in the 1980s that have distinctive bass sound or bass lines okay. in them. Why, why don't we team up on all this? All right, all right. Since you guys were so good at that, te- <laughs> this started, remember, we were going to have mix a lot on the show and I played a little clip. I don't think I even gave a clue and Ray got it from two tenths of a second of a sound, <laughs> which is then, because of that, I was like, all right, son of a gun, this guy, drive me crazy, got that right. So then we played a game where every song from TV shows, I played you a clip that was also two tenths of a second and son of a gun, I think you got all those right too. 
Crazy. So now I'm going to give you one tenth of a second oh, sound. Damn it. No, I'm kidding. It's still going to be two tenths of a second. Ah. I, yeah, breathe easy. <laughs> so I'm gonna. I'll give you a little bit of a clue. I'll play a little little sound, ah. and we'll see if you can get these right. <laughs> this this first one. The clue is a legendary rock band released this song in 1980, but the bass line was inspired by Good Times by the disco group Chic. And here is your sound. It's serious. Aerosmith. Do you have a song though, Ray? <laughs> uh, I'll go Sweet Emotion. Oh, that's a really good guess. I think that's 70s though. So mm. We were looking for... <gasps> Ooh, oh, nice. <laughs> Glad you guys are teaming up for this. <laughs> it's not going to work, I don't think. But yeah. All right, So clearly that was another one bites the dust by Queen. Mm-hmm. In an interview with NME, Chic co-founder Bernard Edwards stated that the Queen record came out because, quote, John Deacon spent some time hanging out with us at our studio. Mm. Having spent 15 weeks on the Billboard Top 10, this track is the longest running Top 10 song of 1980. All right, here's your second one. Two tenths of a second is like, wow. You got all the ones last time. <laughs> <laughs> all right, here is your next one. According to the songwriter, it's natural to assume the lyrics of this 1982 hit song are about a woman, but... The song was actually written about the greed and avarice of New York City in the 80s. And here is your two-tenths of a second bass from that song. <laughs> this is hard. Panama. It, it's easy to believe it's written say, about a woman. That's what? Yeah, I, I, I say Panama. That's that's funny because he wrote Panama really about New York. Kat, <laughs> yeah. yeah, do you have a guess? I, oh man, I'm No, that's okay. All right, we're looking for this song from 1980-something. Oh, Ah. Man Eater. Uh, Featuring bass played by Tom Woke. This is Man Eater by Hall & Oates. Of course, it it was featured on their 11th studio album, H2O. This track remained at the top spot of the Billboard Hot 100 for four weeks, more than any of the duo's five other number one hits. We don't get... Any more clues except for that? Oh no! We want this to go by as quickly we, as possible. We get a, we get a. Here's what it, here's what this works like. Hey, are you ready? Boop. Uh, I feel like the game now is if you'll get if you can just get one. Boop. Uh, okay, here is your third one. In 1984, this song was released as a single from both a soundtrack for a hit movie and an album of the song's same name. And here is your clip. <laughs> All right. It's 1984. It's yep. from a movie. Yep. The album's the same title as the movie. Yes. Huh. What do you got there, Kat? Um, 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 wait, 1984. What? Come on, Ray. Because that, that definitely sounds like some synth bass there. Something, so. I want to guess like Back to the Future or, or Ghostbusters. Uh, <laughs> that's dying. I was thinking more like Vision Quest. <laughs> I am so sorry. We are looking for... <laughs> Damn it. Oh. I had Footloose on the brain, and then I was like, that can't possibly be Footloose. <laughs> Leave it to a keyboard legend to create one of the catchiest bass lines of the decade. Having made his bones in the jazz fusion scene, the late, great George Duke became a fixture in R&B as a solo artist and collaborator. And in 1984, he produced this number one hit from the Footloose soundtrack, of course. Not surprisingly, it's a song built around a keyboard bass lick. Mm-hmm. Huh. Mm-hmm. All right, here is your fourth clue. While this 1989 cover song helped bring its band closer to global acclaim, 
It was the original 1973 version that appeared on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. I really feel like you're going to get this one. Here's your clip. Barney Miller. <laughs> oh my God. The only thing that comes to mind, cause you know, every, these are hard because I get the hair metal stuck in my brain. So <laughs> the only thing that comes to mind is, yeah, is highway star, hmm? steep purple song oh. and white lion covered it around that time. Oh. So, hmm. Oh, that's a great guess. Hmm. But unfortunately <laughs> we are looking for. This, of course, is Higher Ground. Yes. By the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Cover. A cover of Stevie, Stevie Wonder's Wonder. original 1973 song by the same name. It appeared on the band's album Mother's Milk, a greater commercial success than the band's first three albums. According to Amy Hansen of All Music, it was the first step for the band in achieving international success. And while uh, Stevie Wonder's uh, version was number four on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100, Chili Peppers didn't chart on the Billboard Hot 100 at all. Of course, the bass there mm-hmm. is played by Flea. Oh, I should. Oh, man. <laughs> that should have been obvious. Flea's got to be in there somewhere. Well, yeah, yeah, where were you on that? <laughs> All right, here is your fifth clue. Beginning in the 1990s, the bass line for this 1986 heavy metal song was used in the outro for MTV News. Mm-hmm. And here is your clip Megadeth. That's right! It's Peace Cells, but who's buying? That is Peace Cells by Megadeth from their 1986 album, Peace Cells, but who's buying? Written by Dave Mustaine, the uh, distinctive uh, bass part is played by David Ellison, Hmm. who said that when playing the song live, even prior to recording the album, it was clear that Peace Cells would be a hit. VH1 ranked it at number 11 on their list of the 40 greatest metal songs. All right, hey, so you did get one right. I feel like we could just end there, but we're not going to. (laughs) You know what? If they were all heavy mm-hmm. metal, I might have done much better on this. Mm-hmm. I hope I get at least one right. <laughs> well, you've got two more chances, Kat. Okay. <sighs> all right. Here's your next one. All right. This hit 1986 song, which follows an individual seemingly experiencing a midlife crisis, was partially inspired by the singer-songwriter's trip to South Africa. And here is the sound. Hmm. <laughs> Now, you know, I'm going to give you one other clue, I suppose, or a clarification. Hmm. Let's say this isn't the baseline from the song. This is a little break. During the break, when they're doing some solos and stuff, there's a little beat bass break, and that's what this is from. It's iconic when you hear it. Oh. Oh, oh. Um, Is it Paul Simon? You can call me Al? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's the one where they play it backwards. It's like impossible to play real. That's right. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's great that you said that because I've had this conversation with bass guitarists who have told me I was wrong mm. that they, because they can kind of play it mm. or they believe they can play it. Mm-hmm. No, it wasn't backtrack, but you're, you're in fact right. In fact, I confirmed it that the song, as, as Kat mentioned, it features a bass run before the entire bass is played by a gentleman named, a musician named Bakithi. I'm going to hopefully I'm getting your name right. Buddy, <laughs> Bikithi Kumalo. Mm-hmm. The solo is palindromic, as only the first half of it was recorded, mm-hmm. and then they just play the play it backwards mm-hmm. for the second half of the break. Mm-hmm. It seems evident to me, but I've had this conversation with many musicians who are like, "No, I can play it. Look." <laughs> but of course, yes, this is you can call me out by Paul. Simon. Well, 
Well, technically, yes, a musician could play it backwards. Yes, but he said, that musician, that bassist said, I hope I never, didn't he say, like, I hope I never have to play it live. He, or He actually <laughs> does, well, there are some clips on the internet where he has to play well, it live, and yeah, he doesn't, he cannot, he, it doesn't sound the it's same. It's just not quite right. He does his best. <laughs> um, the song was the lead single from Simon's seventh studio album, Graceland. It was also one of Simon's biggest solo hits, reaching t- the top five in seven countries. Mm-hmm. All right. You both got one right. This is fantastic. There's only one left. So, you know, <laughs> it's a you're working together here. Maybe you can get three out of seven. That's not <laughs> horrible. Your final clue is released in 1983. This cautionary hip hop song was covered by Duran Duran in 1995. And here is your clip of the sound. Oh my God. It's Public Enemy. Oh, I see what you're thinking. Is that not right? Did Duran Duran cover a Public Enemy song? Yes, they did. They covered 911 as a joke on Wait, their are album. You kidding Thank me? you in 1995. Wait, but there was something else. The same album where they covered this song as well. This is when I tuned out of Duran Duran, but I think I know what you're talking about. You just said they were better than Van Halen and you tuned out on them? Okay. White lines. Wait, white lines? That's right! Yes, 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 yes! What's interesting is the bass line in that song was played by uh, Doug Wimbish, who was a Sugar Hill uh, house band member. Mm -hmm. So Sugar Hill was a label that put out white lines. He's essentially playing, uh, he pretty much is just identically, he's playing... He's ripping off. He's ripping off the bass line from another song. Okay. And the whole song is really a rip off another song. Okay. <laughs> a song named Cavern by the uh, group Liquid Liquid. If you listen to that song, it's, it's the instrumental of White Lines. Oh, wow. Basically. <laughs> but yes, oh, you got man, it right. That's a miracle. <laughs> if you could have gave me the song, I wouldn't have got that one. <laughs> All right. Hey, in a moment, we'll be right back with our guest today, music journalist Annie Zaleski. Our guest today is a music journalist who has had her work featured in numerous publications, including Rolling Stone, Billboard, and the Los Angeles Times. Likewise, she's shared her impressive musical knowledge on NPR, the CBC, and Sirius XM Canada. Her latest work is part of the 33 and a third series of books about popular music that provide the history and context of individual albums to highlight their place in music history. In her new book, our guest details the importance and continued influence of Rio, Duran Duran's 1982 breakthrough sophomore effort. Please welcome to the show, Annie Zaleski. Hello, thanks for having me. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Kat and I absolutely loved reading your book. I really did love reading this. Like I really did. I And I just felt like, yes. Like I was like, <laughs> I feel proud. I feel vindicated. It's like, I was right to be a fan. I <laughs> that. I don't, I mean, it's very funny, but I've definitely heard that. There's been, so funny. It's, there, there's, it's a cool, it's really interesting. Mm. People think it's kind of like a victory. Like, yeah, it's really cool. Like, this is a book. Like, this this means something. Yes. And that's, yes. I, I was not expecting that response. Mm. That was that was a really, really cool and kind of a gratifying response. So now Kat is our resident Duran Duran fan. As you can see, she actually, behind her, has 
a Simon LeBond <laughs> picture she drew when she was 13 years old. No. Oh, he's, of- he's, he's, he's not laminated, but it's in a sleeve protector that my husband insisted. He didn't want it to get down. Oh my God, that's yeah. amazing. <laughs> so, so Annie, Kat and I first discovered and learned about Duran Duran, you know, in the, in the early 1980s. Mm-hmm. When is it that you first came to know Duran Duran? So it's funny, I, I'm a little bit younger. And so I came to first know Duran Duran in the early 90s. Yep. So this is like the wedding album era. So this was Ordinary World mm-hmm. and Come Undone. I was the type of kid that would go home after school and listen to MTV constant or watch MTV. Mm-hmm. And Duran Duran was all over MTV at that point. So there mm-hmm. was that. And then also I listened to the radio just religiously. And in Cleveland growing up, there was an um, alternative uh, rock station, WENZ, the end, who played Duran Duran constantly. And so they were playing the new stuff and then also kind of the older stuff as well. They had like the flashback retro lunches. And so I kind of came to like all this great Duran Duran music, like pretty much in the same kind of several year period. Nice. (laughs) Most surprising to me is that there was a period of time in the 90s when MTV still played music videos. That's right. After school, it was like, well, it was totally Pauly. I don't know if Pauly Shore played it, but like, Mm. you know, Polly and then, you know, the alternative nation. And like, it's funny because it's like, you know, I was in like, you know, junior high. So I was pretty much the hmm. same age that, you know, a lot of Durannies and maybe like what you were when you right. first discovered yes. them. So yeah. there was something about the band that's always really appealed to teenagers, which I think. Yes. Cool. Yeah. Enjoying Duran Duran. It was a shared experience with, I, I had in particular two really good friends that that's what we we watched the videos we recorded the videos we watched them over and over but i it, it's hard for me to separate my enjoyment of them from those friends it it was um a, a really important to me and i'm wondering about that with you so was it a solo enjoyment or did you have people around you that enjoyed them as well so it's really funny cuz i've been i've been thinking about that hmm. and like when growing up i had like I was like the weird kid, like my, my other favorite band was REM, but I also oh. like the Smiths. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of one of those kids that had weird musical tastes. Cause you know, <laughs> you know, in, in growing up in suburban Ohio in the mid nineties, you know, I, I liked a lot of alternative music, but mm-hmm. to be of the eighties was kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't have a lot of people in person, but I, that was when kind of like America online started getting big <gasps> and internet. And so like, I used to apparently post on the Duran Duran message board on AOL. <laughs> and which, I, I had vague memories of it, like some of the big fan sites I would visit, mm-hmm. but like I found on like an old, old, like late nineties website that apparently I used to post like lyrics competitions on the <laughs> board, which I, like, I was like retroactively really mortified for my teenage self, but I never posted. So I think all that stuff is gone, thankfully. <laughs> Oh so my goodness. people online and mm-hmm. so and I think, mm-hmm. you know and so that was like kind of like my fans and I remember I saw them in 97 with a friend of mine mm-hmm. from high school too and mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. so I took my mom to see them in 2000 and so like I had like people here and there um but like not really a lot of people in person actually until I met like my husband which is funny because wow. he's, he's as big of Duran Duran fan as I am and wow. so you know um, but yeah, but I, I really love you hearing saying that because I've heard that from so many people since this book has come out mm. about how Duran Duran was so meaningful because they shared it with people. There was mm-hmm. just something about the band that yes. people really, uh, you know, and I, I think that's so special because, you know, you heard that with the Beatles, I think a lot. You had mm-hmm. that, but like not all bands kind of have a fan base like that. And so I just, I love yeah. hearing that because it makes me feel really, it makes you feel really good. Annie, what was it about? And maybe it's interesting how you experienced them in the 90s, how we experienced them in the 80s. And maybe there's a similarity in this sort of 
question as I'm going to pose it. In the, in the 1980s, as you point out in your, in your book, there was a challenge for them to break through in the U.S. in particular. Um, ultimately, of course, they succeed. But what was it about their sound maybe then and maybe their sound in the 90s that they were able to ultimately sort of uh, that made them distinct in such a way that attracted listeners like yourself, even in the 90s? You know, it's uh, studying the record was really interesting because, you know, obviously Rio, I I started listening to Rio in the 90s. Like that was one of the records I discovered. And so I've listened to it for decades too. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, listening to it kind of as an adult with fresh ears, it was really interesting. You heard, I heard more of the Bowie influence and Mm -hmm. I become a much bigger Bowie fan too, Mm -hmm. you know, post high school. I think many people, Mm -hmm. you know, Roxy music, Japan, but it's such a dense record. Mm -hmm. And I I think that, that really, and then listen to it on headphones. But I think what appealed finally is that uh, I almost like, I feel like in the nineties and also the eighties, Duran Duran kind of bent music to their will in a sense. <laughs> it was that kind of detail in the book, like, you know, it took, they, they were huge in England at first and in, and in the U S it was a slog trying to get them basically any attention because mm-hmm. rock radio at that time was very meat and potatoes, dudes, <laughs> like guitars, you know, keyboard, no keyboards. And so it was very mm-hmm. straightforward rock and roll. And this was very much indebted. It was very kind of, you know, they looked good. It was very meticulous. You know, it was very indebted to like what Bowie was doing and Roxy music. It was a totally different flavor. Um, but I think, you know, a, it's good songs. I mean, in the eighties, mm-hmm. especially, I mean, hungry, like the wolf, it's kind of undeniable, oh, yeah. you know, finally it's like people picked up on it and, you know, and I mean, and granted there were remixes and things like that, you know, Andy Taylor's guitar in the eighties, I think helped them become a little bit more popular in America because he's such a rocker, mm-hmm. you know, he was really into Van Halen and ACDC. And so he kind of helped them like fit in, mm-hmm. but in the nineties too, what, I mean, what they were doing was so different than anything else that was going on. I mean, in 1993, they're putting out this like beautiful ballad at the height of grunge, you know, ordinary <laughs> world. Come Undone was a little more contemporary. They kind of had more kind of, you know, not even it's like proto trip hop beats basically. Mm -hmm. And so they were doing something a little bit different, but you know, they were always doing something a little bit outside of the mainstream. And so I think a lot of people were a attracted to that because it did sound a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it just kind of, they were always kind of ahead of the curve and it took people had to kind of catch up with them. Mm -hmm. Kat and I were talking about this uh, before we recorded that um, how it's astonishing to us that they were, and at the time it didn't occur to to me, certainly that they were dismissed as being boy band because, and I don't appreciate this till now, you know, uh, composing music myself of how complex some of the, uh, even the chord arrangements are, you know, mm-hmm. how is it that they could be dismissed so easily when, you know, obviously there were music critics at the time that understood this better mm-hmm. than we did as kids. But still, you know, weren't uh, uh, cheering for what they had com- accomplished on Rio. Mm-hmm. It didn't strike me until I really kind of dug into interviews and articles from the time about how different the UK and US was kind of when Rio came out. Um, you know, in the UK, they were dealing with a lot of um, you, um, basically roiling political issues. There was a lot of political upheaval. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of racial turmoil. And so there were a lot of, and Duran Duran was like, we are not political. They would come out and say in interviews, we are not a political band. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people in the UK did not appreciate that. And mm-hmm. so they kind of, you know, and so they were always on the defensive. Like you look at any of their interviews and the interviewers are like, you know, you know, answer these things, you know, you are, you know, you're saying this stuff or, you know, you're, you know, what do you say to people who think that you're a prefab band? Mm-hmm. You know, people thought because they were, they were so good looking and they made these videos that there was no way they could play their own instruments. <laughs> that, that there was no way that they wrote their own songs. <laughs> so they, they had to kind of, they were kind of on the defensive. 
there Mm -hmm. Um, in America because they were considered a video band because they, you know, they connected with MTV first and, you know, people knew them from MTV before radio, which Mm -hmm. was extremely different at the time. People just thought they were some video band. And it's, it's so funny because it's hard to almost con- conceive now that, you know, it's like, okay, you know, you're a music video band, you know, music videos, and you, everyone does them. You know, video is so ingrained into our daily lives. Yes. The fact that this band made these like these elaborate mm-hmm. videos and were acting and they were kind of artsy, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. all of these like articles call them a video band. You know, they were like, that was what they were. They were image first and then everything else came after. Mm-hmm. And so that really like that stacked the deck against them. And mm-hmm. it, it's, it's kind of, it's bonkers to think about that now, just because it's like, I mean, I think most musicians, you know, image goes hand in hand with music, mm-hmm. but people thought that it was basically, that was it, you know? And I think back in the day, music videos were still so new. People mm-hmm. were almost suspicious of them too. <laughs> so it's like, you know, they equated, like if you're on a video, that's like TV. And what is TV? TV is mm-hmm. acting. You know, look like the monkeys, you know, when the monkeys right, came out, right, they right. were, you know, oh, they're just like, you know, ha ha, you know, they're funny, they're acting. And it's like, and how long they've fought to get, you know, um, respect as well. And so I see a trend here. I loved the monkeys too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and like, I, I think in, obviously, and there's so many hardcore, I know tons of hardcore monkeys fans that mm-hmm. I like saw them a couple of years ago. Totally amazing. Yes. But yeah, it, it was an uphill climb. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think also Duran Duran, I think it was a little bit of jealousy too. You know, people were so, they were really good looking and they were really confident. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of people as well, you know, especially rock criticism was very male dominated at that time. So I think mm-hmm. there was also a little bit of jealousy. They felt a little threatened maybe, you know, cause mm-hmm. they were poised. And so there were, there were a whole ton of reasons for that. Good point. Uh, you remind me though, unlike Kat being a fan at that age, now I remember. I just had this flash. I was a secret fan of sorts because you're right. The girls in my school, all the adorable, cute girls, you know, that were, you know, we were just all hitting puberty around 12, 13, loved them. So we had to put them down because they were the competition and we could never be as, you know, attractive as Simon LeBon or, you know, whisk them off to Sri Lanka. And I've heard that. It's so funny because now if you look at like the YouTube videos of like, uh, you know, some of their like vintage videos. And like when John Taylor did some bass lessons, there's all of these guys who were like, I was a metalhead then. I couldn't say I like Duran Duran, but this totally slays. Oh. You, know, <laughs> and, you know, he's a smoking bass player, you know? Like, it's like basically a lot of people admitting, like like you said, like they couldn't mm. admit that they liked them, but mm-hmm. they did. I've heard that so many times. It's really <laughs> fascinating. Uh, wow. As a woman, what are your thoughts on their um, focus on women? Um, now, I, I suppose it could be argued by some that uh, perhaps some of their videos or even some lyrics could be um, sexist mm-hmm. or objectifying. I did not experience them that way. And I mean, I could talk about that or explain that, but I, I'm so curious to hear what you think about that. It's complicated because mm-hmm. like girls on film, especially, and, you know, it's funny because I don't think I'd ever seen the uncensored version oh. <laughs> until I like, it, honestly, it's hard to find, which mm-hmm. is really funny. I I saw it when I was 14. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I got, well, it's funny because I bought the VHS mm-hmm. and because like we, we had to like dig out our DVD because it's never been on DVD. So we had to dig out right. of our VCR and like listen to it and like mm-hmm. rip it. But I was like, oh, I've never seen this before because mm-hmm. it wasn't. And it was such a different experience from the censored one, which I'm used to because yes. that one to me, is like 
you know, it uh, to me, I, I see humor in it almost yes. like in, in that, that it's like they're kind of like, you know, it's it's a cheeky commentary on fashion and how ridiculous fashion shows are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's like over the top. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I would used to. And so that's I've always said, OK, you know, I don't see anything objectifying about this because mm-hmm. that's what it is. And I think even Simon in early, you know, interview was like, oh, it's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. But when you look at like the uncensored one, you're like. It's an entirely different experience. Right. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, and so, and I'm just like, okay. And, but it's also a little bit over the top mm-hmm. and, you know, I'm not, you know, and uh, so, and so I'm just kind of like, well, okay, how do you like kind of reconcile those? Mm-hmm. And I think part of it is that they were so young at the time mm-hmm. and not, not that like youth excuses anything, mm-hmm. but also because music videos were such a young medium mm-hmm. too, that mm. they were sort of like, they weren't thinking deeply about, oh, you know, we are objectifying women. Right. They were right. sort of like, sure, let's just go along with it. That's cool. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and they weren't necessarily trying to make statements kind of going back to say, we're not a political band. They weren't thinking too deeply about what statement they're going to make mm-hmm. or thinking 40 years later, people are going to be analyzing this because they were suddenly <laughs> banned. Yes. Um, you know, and I think, and I think they've even said, you know, come out over the years. And I, I think how I reconcile is when you listen to them in interviews, they respect women. I mean, mm-hmm. that's what's so funny is that mm-hmm. they like, they are gentlemen, they are British gentlemen. Mm-hmm. And so they might project these things in different videos, but I've never been offended by it. I've never mm-hmm. been like, you know, okay, you know, this is, you know, they're total jerks because their public personas are so different. Yeah. And I think it's just interesting because they do, there is such an interesting dichotomy just in Duran Duran in general, mm-hmm. between they have this, you know, very, I mean, they're wearing these like beautiful suits, but yet they might have these videos that are just completely over the top. I mean, mm-hmm. I like something like Rio, mm-hmm. so, you know, the woman in there, she's, she's the main character, yes. in the, you know, but she, she, beats them all like they try to like catch her and she was like no i'm smarter than all of you exactly so there's that element too so you can't necessarily say all right you know they're being sexist about her because she's the one that wins yes and i think that's that's that that video is a little bit harder just because i think people uh, the image from that video that kind of lasts them on the yacht and so that <laughs> video that that's the image that people take away from it it's like oh rio the yacht okay they're rich <laughs> but the whole real subplot is this kind of cheeky plot where they're basically these hapless men. Yes. So, <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting. I think it, what it boils down to is I think, and it was funny, they just covered acceptable in the eighties by Calvin Harris during girls on film, mm-hmm. which is actually kind of funny. Cause basically the, the lyrics are kind of cheeky. They're like, you know, it was acceptable in the eighties. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, it would never fly now, like not even remotely would fly now. Mm-hmm. If they put out girls on film now, there would be a complete outcry. Right. But 40 years ago, it was like, you know, there it's in dance clubs. It's like the post-disco 70s, mm-hmm. early 80s hangover. Like this is meant to be getting attention and be X-rated in clubs. Mm-hmm. Times were so different. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I think, I mean, I mean, I, I liken it to when you look at a bunch of 80s movies too. Yes. I can't even watch 16 Candles anymore yeah. because like so offensive mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's way mm-hmm. more offensive than anything Duran Duran has ever done just in terms of mm-hmm. you know things like that so it's funny to me that you mentioned how they d- didn't want to be political again considering things in light of today how in the UK mm-hmm. people would be saying be political and today in the US people say don't be political but mm-hmm. without knowing it or without meaning to they were making they were making a statement to some as you pointed out being on yachts wearing certain clothing about that like you know in that whole video and it's like they almost this is them like manifesting their own kind of destiny right and you know it became like their identity which was probably unwittingly honestly yes i I think (laughs) you remind me of what i was going to say because you know thinking about how you like you said it it was aspirational 
but yeah. at the same time, in, in your book, you quote, uh, I think it's an earlier article with Simon Le Bon, who says that their, their strength lies in them being who they are and not who they yeah. are, are, not who they want to be. But that seems like maybe then it's in the studio. As far as the videos go, that's a whole other, or they're out, you know, they're uh, exterior. It's different. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's funny because Simon is the, he's the one with acting experience. Mm-hmm. And so he's, he's, he was the one who kind of knew how to work the camera. And I think various oh, yeah. other members of the band were either like, you know, they had, they tolerated the camera more or less than others, basically. But Simon like knew how to kind of act. He knew how to kind of project persona. Yes. And so he was kind of the, I mean, he became the natural stars, like even though just because he, you know, could, he was comfortable doing that. I mean, he, he's a natural front man. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, musically though, it is true. They weren't. And I think that's the one thing about Duran Duran. They've never tried to be anything that they're not. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. you know, they kind of like, you even hear it with like their new songs now that they're like, you just, they're just kind of following their muse. However, they feel like doing that now. Yeah. And that you know, sometimes been to their detriment in their career, but most times like they know what they're doing and mm-hmm. they, you know, it's, they've connected. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It is amazing. Like you said about talking about the music videos that uh, they were young and that's not an excuse necessarily for the content of the videos, but it is also astounding that considering how young they were at the time, I think what Simon was the oldest at, at, at around 23 mm-hmm. went during Rio and uh, what was it? Uh, Nick was, was 19, it Nick was the, right? 19, that how <laughs> self-assured they were even at the time. That I remember in the book, you talk about how their first show, this is talking about when they first started out, their first show was in July of 1980. And then according yeah. to Nick Rhodes, they were, quote, ready by December of that same year. They're ready. They're gone. Yeah. And then and and they I mean, were. And it, yes. And I mean, to be fair, they had been kicking around for like, you know, a couple years mm. in Birmingham doing stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Nick literally had like just turned 18. He was like their mid-July show. He had turned 18 in June. Wow. And so like, and, and all of a sudden it's like, okay. And then, yeah, by the end of the year, they were good enough with Simon within six months, got a record deal. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. I mean, that was, I think one of the more mind blowing things was when you actually sit down and put together their timeline of how they kind of evolved. Mm-hmm. It's like this like massively compressed amount of time. Mm-hmm. It's like less than two years after they played their first show with Simon. Yeah. We're coming out with Rio. Like what? <laughs> ridiculous they were already re- working on it right like they had already yeah, begun. They started working on it and some of the songs had kind of been dating from you know earlier rehearsals but and you know they, they played some of the songs in like late 1981 but like all of this like they were just so working hard and touring hard and it just all came together so when, when you're like a creative unit you're all kind of moving in the same direction mm-hmm. it's a real power to the testament of what can happen mm-hmm. obviously you wrote a book about rio you didn't write a book about duran duran the first album or any of their subsequent <laughs> albums what is it about rio that has you has folks still examining it you know almost 40 years later yeah i mean we've touched on it a little bit i mean uh, the music videos mm-hmm. you know i mean when people think about you know there's a real uh, kind of an interesting story and that MTV started in August of 81 and then Duran Duran kind of grew up with them. So there's, you know, there's a real powerful story in the power of music video and how can make a band a success. Mm-hmm. But you also have just the music. I mean, the music is just, it's like, as you were talking about Kat, like it's so well sequenced mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The record that, you know, is yep. very meticulously sequenced. It is a perfect record. Every song is good. Mm-hmm. Every note is there. Mm-hmm. And so it's a record that's really held up. But it's also unique, as we were kind of talking about. No one has ever made a record that sounds like Rio. Mm. Like even in the Duran Duran sound, Roger Taylor told me this when, <laughs> when I talked to him. He was like, you know, you hear a song, it can only be us. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Like, completely right. There's something about their sound, yeah. whatever they do when they get into a room together yes. and start playing, it sounds unique. And so, I mean, in the 80s, you know, after them, you know, there's all 
tons of amazing singles, but there's also a lot of ripping off and there's a lot of, you know, it gets diluted. And, you know, especially when like, you know, different produce, I mean, Stock, Stock Aiken Waterman love their production, but at a certain point they had a formula mm-hmm. and, you know, and a lot of like, like, and a lot of bands suffered for that, but like Duran Duran, they, they sound completely unique. Mm. And so you have that, but then the aesthetic, of course, like Patrick Nagel, I mean, there was, it's, it's an art project, you know, mm. it's basically a piece of art through and through. Um, you know, there's a reason why we're still talking about it just because then everything is really held up well, I think. Well, Annie, we are so grateful for, for your, the efforts you put into bringing us a new perspective on one of our favorite albums from the 1980s, Rio. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. So Kat, you're the Duran Duran fan. I am. Reading this book and talking to Annie, did you find yourself learning even more about Duran Duran? Absolutely. I did. I tried to learn as much as I could when I was uh, in the moment back in the eighties, but don't make fun of me, Ray. (laughs) But I I definitely learned things that I just (laughs) didn't. Ray's like me. I don't make fun of people. What (laughs) are you talking about? (laughs) You have me mistaken with another fellow. (laughs) Did we even have a way to research bands in the 1980s? What did we do? Uh, 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 Yeah. It depended what you followed. So for me, it was uh, metal edge, rip magazines, stuff like that. You know, we had magazines for happy metal. Um, and you had magazines for bands like Duran Duran, like Teen Beat and right. Sixteen, where they just showed pretty pictures of Simon. No, I read mm-hmm. the liner notes. That's where I learned oh, my information. Okay. And I That's listened true. to interviews. <laughs> <Right>. where, where did you hear interviews with them? MTV and Z100, based out of New York. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Right. Hmm. So I definitely, yeah, like, I, I think that's a good point. It would have been so much easier to learn so much more about them if we had, uh, oh, if I'd been able to, to Google them. Well, thanks to Annie. I learned how seminal this album was for Duran Duran and we'll probably forget most of the things in this book, but dude, I do know <laughs> that's, just, that, that's a reflection on me, Annie, not you. I just, I don't have a facility for remembering things I read. I'll pick up the slack. <laughs> okay. Hey, our show is uh, brought to you. Thanks to the generosity of our patrons who support us via patreon.com. We want to give a special thanks to those folks, including John Henderson, mm-hmm. Bart Arnold, mm. Craig Coletta, and John Kaminsky. Thanks, guys. <laughs> you, you too can help support future episodes of this mm-hmm. podcast by going to patreon.com slash 1980s now. Why, why is it a question? <laughs> Did I get it right? <laughs> we did the trivia earlier in the show, <laughs> and it sounded like this. I could do that. It's so much easier. <laughs> we will talk to you next time on 1980s Now. Oh, see ya. Later. Later.